0: Hello, everyone. I'm Manar Adley. I'm the founder and director of Mint Press News and your host of the MintCast podcast. I'm also joined by my co-host and our senior staff writer, the brilliant Alan McLeod. Hi, Alan.
1: Hello, Manar. How are you?
0: <laughs> good, good. Um, this show, the midcast is made possible by supporters like you, um, as we and all independent media outlets face major shadow banning on many of the platforms and the crackdown on independent anti-war watchdog journalism intensifies, we ask that you support us by becoming a member on our Patreon page, which we will link in the comments. The Midcast podcast is also available on all of your favorite um, podcast Mm -hmm. platforms. And I just actually received um, some of those analytics for the podcast. We received, I think it was over 100,000 downloads in the course of just a few months. So we were pretty happy about that giving us be- uh, better better numbers than than YouTube has so we appreciate everybody's support um the war in ukraine is well now into its second year and the united states is insisting on pumping billions more into the quagmire that has seen thousands of lives lost and millions displaced So recently, the U.S. has approved more than one hundred and thirteen billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. Most of that being weapons, making companies like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon very happy as these profits and these sales um, line their pockets. So this year, President Biden has approved a record breaking eight hundred and forty two billion dollar war budget. Yet much of this is not even directed towards Ukraine or Russia, but actually directed towards China. So not content with turning not content with turning Europe into a war zone. It it seems the U.S. wants to do the same to Asia, spending huge sums of a ring of bases supposedly to protect and defend from a Chinese threat in the South China Sea to break down. The War in Ukraine, China, and the Permanent War Economy, we are very excited to be joined again by author and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, and you can find his work at hedges.substack.com, and we also republish many of his op-eds and analysis pieces. Um, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Manar. So even as the Ukraine conflict continues unabated, war planners in Washington are gearing up for another potential conflict, this time with China. Could you lay some of the provocative U.S. US actions out and perhaps tell us how serious a threat you think this possibility is?
2: Well, it's a serious threat given the mindset of the... uh, war mongers who dominate the Washington establishment. And I know many of them. I I have dealt with them going all the way back to the conflicts in Central America. So for instance, when I covered the war in El Salvador, I spent five years covering that war uh, during the Reagan administration. Elliot Abrams was in the State Department uh, and his deputy was Robert Kagan. Uh, And their job was to discredit what we reporters and photographers were documenting on the ground, the kinds of atrocities that were being committed almost daily by the Salvadoran military and the death squads, as well as the murderous rampages by Rios Mon in Guatemala. Um, these are shills for war. Uh, it doesn't matter how wrong they are. Uh, I of course encountered them again in 1989 when I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. So I was, present when promises were made by the German foreign minister Hans Dietrich Genscher and then Secretary of State James Baker to Gorbachev not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Well, NATO was expanded and in, in violation of that promise. Why? Two reasons. One, the U.S. with, a, with a, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union saw Russia as a weak even failed state that was of no concern. So it was hubris. Uh, they spoke about a multi, the end of a multipolar world and, and a new unipolar world, domin- in essence, dominated global domination by the United States. And then there were billions upon billions of dollars to be made by uh, making uh, militaries in Central and Eastern Europe uh, compatible with NATO equipment. So those two reasons, they were a uh, Aware that these were provocations to Russia. They didn't care. WikiLeaks released uh, a, a, an internal email by uh, William Burns, now the head of the CIA, who was then ambassador to Russia, that talked about Ukraine being a red line. So it's not like they weren't aware. They didn't care. And then, of course, the 2014 coup. So it comes out of hubris, it comes out of feeding the arms industry. You mentioned the what is it, $854 billion arms budget. When you count uh, other budgets, uh, Veterans Affairs and nuclear, it actually comes closer to a trillion dollars a year. Um, but uh, $400 billion of that goes directly into the pockets of the arms manufacturers. And, and you have a staggering number of uh, former admirals, generals uh, who sit on the boards. I mean, in fact, of course, uh, Lloyd Austin came off of the board uh, of uh, was it General Dynamics? We can't remember which one it was. Um, so there's that kind of cross-pollination between the arms industry. Um, I think that part of the reason, also in the expansion of NATO, was that they needed to. Uh, if if Russia wouldn't be the enemy, they 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 couldn't justify the expansion of NATO unless they forced Russia to be the enemy. And that's the tragedy because Gorbachev wanted. Uh, both security and economic alliances with the United States and the West, as did Yeltsin, as people forget in the early years did Putin. Uh, So we we have these shills of the war industry. Their think tanks are all funded by the war industry, Brookings and uh, (coughs) uh, Heritage, and uh, uh, they never go away. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. They were all cheerleaders, of course, for the war in Iraq, Uh, um, but they represent those interests. And they are creations of the Washington establishment. They don't actually know war. They know very little about geopolitics. Uh, their entire frame of reference is uh, World War II and Munich. Everybody's the new Hitler. Saddam Hussein was the new Hitler. Putin's the new Hitler. I guess G will eventually become the new Hitler. Uh, and it, it's it's all about expansion and domination. And then. So the, the goal, of course, is proxy war in Ukraine it has nothing to do with Ukraine or democracy. Uh, it has to do with degrading the Russian military and isolating Putin from Europe, largely achieved, uh, certainly in terms of the isolation of Putin. Um, however, they are fully aware that a long war of attrition is one they probably can't win, despite the what appear to be pretty heavy losses on the part of the Russians, Uh, And I think that's why they're kind of crossing every red line that they impose in terms of arm shipments. Uh, And now, of course, we're talking about F-16 fighter jets um, uh, because it's a kind of hail mary. Uh, The the giving I think they gave them what 31 or 33 M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, Those are relatively useless without air cover. Um, Nor is it a particularly large number. Also, Abrams are very temperamental. I was in the last tank battle in the first Gulf War with Abrams. Uh, they're very unforgiving to mistakes. They take their uh, their uh, maintenance heavy. They're very temperamental vehicles and need almost constant maintenance. I don't think that they. I think most probably planners understand NATO planners that it won't make a huge difference. But I think it's part of the desperation that the longer the war goes on, the uh, the worse it is for Ukraine. All that said, uh, the, the the chief objectives of the war, of the proxy war, are being achieved very cynically with Ukrainian blood and the destruction of Ukraine. Uh, I think no one expects the Ukrainians to retake the Donbass, uh, whether it's Henry Kissinger or the editorial board of the New York Times, both of whom have said that, that eventually there will have to be a negotiated solution. Um, it has upended the traditional Cold War policy of making sure that Moscow and Beijing remain separate. It's pushed Russia, a country rich in natural resources, into the arms of uh, an industrial and technological giant, China. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with the loss of U.S. hegemony. Uh, of course, China is the real prize, and that's why we see uh, the this kind of NATO expansion into uh countries like Korea, Japan, everywhere else. Uh, It's why we see the uh, nuclear submarine deal with Australia. Uh, It's why we see long patrols in the South China Sea, which would be the equivalent of China, essentially sending aircraft carriers and uh, destroyers to go up and down the coast of California. Uh, But these people have been around for a very long time. Uh, uh, I know how they think. I know and have interviewed many of them. Um, and they're very dangerous, because uh, they are blinded by their own hubris, uh, blinded by their own power, Uh, although, of course, they have orchestrated one military fiasco after another, starting with Vietnam 20 years in the Middle East. So they're very dangerous people, and of course, finally, both Russia and China are nuclear powers, And, uh, and, and what we're doing is essentially flirting with a nuclear conflagration. So they're they're very dangerous people, um, and it doesn't matter which administration is in power. I mean, Victoria Nuland was uh, Dick Cheney's uh, chief foreign policy advisor when he's was in uh, was he when he was the vice president, and now, of course, she's in the State Department under Biden.
0: I was just about to I was just thinking of Victoria Newland because, you know, she's Robert Kagan's wife and you mentioned at the very beginning. It's like the swamp has not been drained. They're all still the same people from both, you know, working in the background uh, within both parties.
1: Yeah, if I can just jump in everything you were saying there, Chris, um, it really reminded me of an article that stuck with me that you wrote a little while back called uh, No Way Out But War. And when you were speaking, I was just looking up and you said uh, in that article, you said permanent war has cannibalized the country. It has created a social, political and economic morass. Each new military debacle is another nail in the coffin of Pax Americana, end quote. Um, Yeah, that's really interesting. Quote. Are you suggesting there that uh, you think American dominance is on the decline? And if so, do you think that makes the United States a more or less dangerous place vis-a-vis the rest of the
2: world. Well, it's clearly on the decline, uh, as anybody who drives through uh, large swaths of the United States will tell you. One decayed city after another, all of the uh, mechanisms of repression that were tested largely on people of color, the way the Israelis do in Gaza, uh, uh, have migrated back to the homeland, militarized drones, wholesale surveillance, militarized police. We run the largest prison system in the world, 25% of the world's prisoners, although we are only, uh, uh less than 5% of the world's population. So, um, we're dying the same way any empire dies. Uh, and, and, and what happens, and I just, as a caveat would say, you know, I studied classics at Harvard. So I'm acutely familiar with the, the trajectory of the Athenian Empire and the Roman Empire, which died in much the same way. And, and what happens is that the the in the inception of empire, the, they actually uh, use military force very judiciously. Uh, but at the end of empire, <clears throat> when they lose that hegemony, they engage in what historians called micro militarism, and that is uh, they uh, they uh, carry out. Acts of military adventurism that are self-destructive, and that certainly is exactly what the United States has done now for decades, Um, and uh, and that is what led to the collapse of both the Roman and the uh, Athenian Empire. In the case of Athens, they attacked Sicily, and their fleet was sunk, and most of their uh, soldiers were killed, and uh, then the empire fragmented, and there were uprisings throughout the empire. Uh, in Rome, it was, again, the dominance of this military machine, one, one million-man army that was finally in the final stages of Rome auctioning off the seat of empire. It, it, that militarism, when it becomes uncontrollable, it's what the social German socialist Karl Leibniz called the enemy from within, uh, will uh, disembowel the country, which it's done. Uh, but but also there whether it's unregulated there's no restraint, there's no control uh, and this is what toynbee the the historian Arnold Toynbee also cites the uh, rampant unchecked militarism as the 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 most fatal force in terms of the death of empire. I mean we we have essentially allowed China through deindustrialization that comes of course with seeking cheap labor to uh, hollow out the industrial power of the United States. Uh, the Chinese economy—I can't remember by what years—is uh, set to overtake uh, the American economy. Uh, and I think that that uh, uh, loss of uh, capitalist uh, dominance, uh, coupled with the, the cracks or the rise of this multipolar world, and then you know, finally, we have to acknowledge. Uh, what will be the fatal blow, and that is the loss of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. We're already seeing China, Russia, Iran, other countries attempt to set up an alternative SWIFT system as the international money transfer system that doesn't use the dollar. And We know exactly how that will play out because when the pound sterling was dropped as the world's reserve currency in Britain in the 1950s, the British economy went into a tailspin. Will be far worse off because we won't. We, we fund our military like much of our government on debt, uh, and people will not be buying treasury bonds. The value of the dollar will drop precipitously, uh, and the empire itself will become unaffordable. We won't be able to maintain the 750 military bases that are scattered around the globe. So that all of that is coming, uh, and 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 what we're seeing is a kind of desperation on the part of the militarists. Uh, Who are stoking or the way essentially to deal with that decline is to stoke a confrontation directly with China and they're planning for it. I mean, we have U.S. Marines are training uh, on uh, storming uh, islands uh, uh, because that's exactly what they would have to do uh, if there was a confrontation with China. Um, uh, So, yeah, these people are really, really frightening. And um, they have essentially orchestrated one military fiasco after another. I mean, in in any functioning state, these people would be held accountable, uh, certainly for the 20 years of war crimes uh, that they committed throughout the Middle East. But of course, they're not. They're not held accountable by the press. They're not held accountable by the power structure, which is an appendage of corporate America and in particular, the arms industry. Uh, and so they're allowed to, you know, they've kind of gotten us in this death embrace um, as we waltz forward towards catastrophe.
0: And I want to steer this question towards you, Alan, but before I do that, I want to just share this tweet here by John Pilger. Um, one second, let me get this out. And it's about, um, Papua New Guinea. So John Pilger just tweeted, um, unknown to most, Papua New Guinea has agreed or otherwise been bribed to allow the U.S. to take over the impoverished island states' ports and airports, thus completing the noose of U.S. bases around eastern China. The U.S. will get its war um, if you allow it, and obviously John Pilger's, um, you know, well-known journalist and director of the film *The Coming War with China*, which I recommend everybody uh, watch. But you know, here here we are um, with another war gearing up towards China. So, Alan, my question for you is: What is driving all of this? I mean, why is, is the United States turning its gaze towards China? In simple terms. What explains a seemingly new focus on um, Beijing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess just to start off with that uh, film, The Coming War of China, came out quite a while ago now. And uh, when I saw it first, I thought, well, you know, this is a prediction, but maybe it's a bit alarmist. But now it seems completely, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Pilger seems Cassandra like in his uh, predictions on what was going to happen. And it seems that, you know, we're rapidly racing towards this nuclear Armageddon. And I think. you can't can't really understand this unless you really think about the United States seeing itself as a global empire. I know people like Abby Martin and the Empire Files talk about this a lot, whereby they say, ultimately, the United States thinks of itself as a planetary power, which attempts to control as much of the globe as possible. If you go back even way back into the 1940s, just at the end of World War Two, 1949, all of these U.S. war planners, in their secret or internal documents, governmental or in, you know, uh, in big uh, think tanks, were talking about the loss of China. Now, if you think about what that means, really, you can't really lose something unless you own it, and that was the mentality back then when uh, Mao Zedong and the communists took power in the 1940s. They saw themselves as losing China a lot of people don't know that the United States actually invaded China in 1945 and occupied the country with tens of thousands of troops uh, for four years until 1949 when they were kicked out and their allies the uh, Kuomintang fled to Taiwan which is actually one of the reasons uh, why you know this conflict is starting to flare up again the United States was furious at China for you know uh, You know, becoming independent. And that really lasted until the 1970s and the uh, administration of Richard Nixon. They refused to recognize uh, the government in Beijing until then. Uh, But, you know, after that, we saw like a 30, 40 year period whereby relations with China were much less strained. And in fact, you could say even good. But this really changes in the early 2010s in the Obama administration with the pivot to Asia is what he called it. And what he meant by that was drawing down the troops in the Middle East, which is, of course, part of Asia, but uh, moving them off to the east to confront what he saw as this rising dragon, this rising economic power that needed to be dealt with. And part of that is what Pilger is talking about in that tweet there. The United States has encircled China from the south to the southeast and the east with a ring of some 400 military bases. This one in Papua New Guinea appears to just be the latest one. But only weeks ago, the Philippines was announcing that it was giving four uh, new bases to the United States as well. And so much of this is being driven by the what we call the military-industrial complex. That's not just the big arms companies which make billions off of wars every time we go out. There is a myriad of think tanks in, in Washington and New York which are funded by uh, these weapons manufacturers and who constantly put out uh, reports talking about how there's this new threat along the horizon. We have to deal with it. We have to build up our military. We keep, have to keep spending. And we have to keep pushing the ante up and up just in case something happens. And we've seen this in the last few years that China has become the new threat, really. It, in the last few years, we've seen Chinese people demonize because of COVID. We've seen suddenly the plight of Chinese minorities in Xinjiang or Hong Kong or Tibet being front-page news. Now, I'm not saying that uh, those aren't real issues, but what I am saying is that the United States is very cynically using uh, these problems inside China to try to drum up resentment and ultimately try to uh, weaken the government in Beijing. A lot of this is actually happening... One little flavor of this is actually happening because uh, the government of Taiwan, which is very independence minded, has been funneling millions of dollars into a lot of these think tanks in D.C. And in New York, for instance, it's given millions to groups like CSIS or the Atlantic Council or the Hudson Institute, which in turn fly over President Tsai Ing-wen and wine and dine her and treat her like she is the, you know, a beacon of democracy in East Asia. All the while, this is ramping up the threat of a nuclear Armageddon with China, which would kill us all. And so ultimately, we are in a situation where Taiwan appears to be uh, looking like it's going to be the Ukraine of uh, East Asia. And ultimately, that's not going to benefit anybody, certainly not the Taiwanese people. But if the United States and China engage in any kind of serious, protracted war it will likely mean the end of all of us because if nuclear weapons get involved, then 99% of, the, of humanity is going to die. And so that is really why everybody should be looking at this uh, very skeptically. And we should be having mass movements in the streets to try to stop this madness before it gets started.
0: Well, I would love to see that happen as well. But it seems like the anti-war movement, um, especially in the United States, has been completely co-opted but i hope that um there is some serious organizing coming soon um the united states frames this conflict with china of course just like it does with any other conflict as one between democracy and authoritarian uh autocracies so do you think that this is what this is all about and what does it say about the u.s mentality if as you've noted former secretary of state hillary clinton calls this the the, the not the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the American Sea? And that question is um, for Alan.
1: Uh, It's for me, yeah, um, well, I think the United States tends to frame most um, conflicts like that, that they are the beacon, they are the shining city on the hill and that their enemies are, you know, hopelessly authoritarian or bad in some way. But ultimately, when you look back over the decades, even centuries, of conflicts the United States has been involved in. They are very often, in fact, usually the bad guys. There was a recent uh, report about, done by a US governmental body, which actually showed that there has been more than 250 military interventions uh, by the United States since the end of the Cold War in 1991. There's barely been a year since the United States' founding back in the late 18th century where the country has not been at war. This country is addicted to it and it's how the country really functions. In fact, Chris knows this better than almost anybody. He wrote a whole book on it. War is a force that gives us meaning, that really, uh, you know, details this suicidal drive towards war. And so, yeah, ultimately, if we don't understand this as the United States being some kind of huge global empire, which is uh, hellbent on controlling as much of the planet as possible. We're not going to really understand this conflict or any conflict in any kind of detail. And so that's why we really need to wash away this kind of framing of uh, democracy versus authoritarian. The US enemies might be authoritarian, they might not be, but that's not what this uh, conflict is about. It's not what any conflict that involves the United States is really about either.
0: Absolutely not. They're of course always there to fuel the military industrial complex and Chris, at a recent anti-war event in D.C., you were excruciating a group you called the High Priests of Empire, meaning journalists, pundits, and politicians. You've seen war up close and personal, and you have suffered serious professional consequences for speaking out against it. Why is it that so few people in similar positions do so, especially these days, um, instead of cheerle- Instead of their cheerleading uh, for more war?
2: because it's about careerism it's clear was clear i mean for instance i spent seven years in the middle east there wasn't any daylight between myself and the other reporters in the middle east about the folly of attempting to invade and occupy iraq but the other reporters were smart enough to be quiet uh because it was a career killer uh to come out and attack uh this uh Called to invade Iraq, as I, but I knew what I was doing. Uh, so, yeah, it's careerism. Uh, you have people, you know, all sorts of people, George Packer and others who were cheerleaders for the war who didn't come out of the Middle East. They didn't know it didn't make any difference. And those of us who actually had experience on the ground, including in Iraq, were shut out. Um, so, yeah, I think it's primarily careerism. I worked at the New York Times, it's a very careerist institution, uh, and they know how to read, you know, what's good for their career and what's not. So I think that's really what it comes down to.
0: Well, and it seems like we're seeing that kind of same careerism within the political system as well when it comes to people like AOC um, who do, you know, a lot of good things, you know, for many issues. But then when it comes to war, they're still pushing Russiagate. They're still pushing the same narratives that come out of the State Department. Is that what we're seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the so-called squad of, has been told that if they want to have political viability, they'll dance to the tune that the Democratic leadership plays. And if they don't dance to that tune, they'll go the way of Dennis Kucinich, who was, because of redistricting or gerrymandering in Ohio by the Democratic Party, was pushed out of the House. So yeah, it's uh, it's a very unforgiving system. And they'll lose their media perch as well. I mean, if you uh, if, if you don't, parrot back the dominant narrative, you, you you don't get on the commercial media, uh, CNN, MSNBC, yeah. New York Times, anywhere
0: else. And we saw that with Ilhan Omar when she just stepped out of the norm and talked about the Israel lobby for just a moment. One statement. It didn't last too long, but yes, you're right. Um, but in that moment, she was completely smeared and targeted yeah. in, a, in a pretty cruel campaign, uh, unfortunately. Go ahead, Alan. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, I was just thinking we we haven't really talked about Ukraine too much. Um, And yeah, Chris, you write about Ukraine a lot. Uh, One interesting article I was reading just before this is called uh, Ukraine's Death by Proxy, which you can find at chishedges.substack.com. In that, you wrote that Ukraine is a pawn for militarists intent on degrading Russia and ultimately China in a self-defeating quest to ensure U.S. global hegemony. The end of this war, like most proxy wars, will be ugly. Um, Can you unpack that for us? What did you mean by that exactly?
2: Well, because proxy wars always end, I've covered many of them, the Kurds, and they always end with betrayal. They, They will sell Ukraine out as soon as Ukraine can no longer serve the interests of the US empire. Right now, Europe is being made to pay the price of the proxy war, the double digit inflation, the German. Industry is crippled with a high price of uh, natural gas, etc. There will probably be rationing and heating shortages uh, this coming winter. Um, and we're, we, although we suffer from inflation, we're not uh, as economically impacted. That would change with a war with China because a war with China would disrupt the global supply chain. Uh, In companies like Apple, for instance, I mean, Apple produces 90% of its products in China. Uh, We had $690 billion in trade with China uh, last year. Um, uh, As I mentioned before, China's manufacturing uh, has uh, doubled that of the United States since 2004. It produces the largest number of ships. Steel, smartphones, uh, it, it it dominates the global market in terms of chemicals, metals, heavy uh, industrial equipment, electronics. It's the largest exporter of rare earth minerals, as well as the greatest reserve holder. Now, these are uh, and, and 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 it has eighty percent of the refining of uh, of rare earth metals worldwide. Now, these are these are essential for. Computer chips, smartphones, television screens, medical equipment, fluorescent light bulbs, cars, wind turbines, fighter jets, satellite communications, etc. So, a war with China would uh, have an economic impact on the United States that the war, the proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, is not having. Um, you would have a massive shortage of a variety of goods and services. Um, you. It definitely trigger uh, serious inflation, certainly double digit inflation, uh, widespread unemployment, uh, probably at least initially rationing. I, I don't see how the global stock exchanges in a war with China would even be able to operate certainly in the short term and and it would trigger a global depression um, so the you know, what these militarists are doing, and we're already, of course, the, the, the frayed political uh, establishment in the United States. There are anemic political, the, the bifurcation of the country into antagonistic tribes, the, uh, the gun violence, I and mean, all of this would be exacerbated. So I think what we would really see is tremendous internal upheaval with a war with China. That doesn't matter to these people because it's all about the profits for Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin, whose profits have increased by about 40% uh, because of the Ukraine conflict. That's what it's about. Uh, But the internal consequences would be really severe.
1: If you're just joining us, we're watching, uh, you're speaking with uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. If you're watching on YouTube, please do like and share the stream. And there is a donate button down below. If you are in an economic position to help us, that would be very helpful, especially if you could become a Patreon. Um, Chris, the Biden administration's latest military budget, as we touched on a little bit earlier, is set to be the largest in history. And there was a report that said it was as much as 144 countries combined. And as you said, that doesn't even include things like nuclear weapons and uh, veterans' pensions. So why does this budget always increase? And hopefully I'm not leading you too much here, but is this spending (laughs) necessary or beneficial for the American people or for anyone?
2: Well, it, it increases because the military establishment has no regulation, oversight or control. So, in fact, in this last budget, the Pentagon got $45 uh, billion dollars more than the Biden administration even requested. There's no auditing. I don't think they've audited the Pentagon in over a decade. Waste, fraud, which we know is rampant.
0: That's incredible.
2: Uh, it's just not controlled. So, And that gets back to the point I made earlier. An out-of-control militarism, as Toynbee wrote, uh, is the death knell of any empire. So it, it's a state within a state. It, it neither party uh, has any capacity to rein in or control the military, and that's what kills empire.
0: And we just have one more question here, and this one goes um, to Alan. We want to talk about the big TikTok craze. Um, while we are now, you know, deluged with stories about China's influence on America, your investigations, Alan, have suggested that some of that is overblown. I'm thinking especially about your article on TikTok's trust and safety division being full of ex-State Department employees. And I believe it was just, uh, was it today or yesterday? I think it was Montana that completely banned TikTok under the banner of it being a Chinese intelligence app. Can you tell us about TikTok?
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. TikTok is absolutely huge. Uh, It is the number one social media for young people under 30 the world over. It has grown from a tiny site to something which has something close to about one billion users globally in no time at all. And as you said, in this climate of suspicion, we've seen Montana being the first state to pretty much outright ban the app. Um, It's not banning Facebook or Instagram or Twitter but it is banning TikTok. Now, I have my problems with TikTok. I think uh, it will ruin your attention span. It does uh, collect personal data, but the things that are wrong with TikTok can really be levied at the other big social media apps as well. And this isn't the first time that we've seen a lot of hype around TikTok, a lot of hysteria over the app in Washington. You might remember a couple of years ago, the Trump administration made a big noise about banning uh, TikTok entirely. And it even forced through uh, a lot of draconian legislation to the point where TikTok was actually going to be sold to Microsoft. But very quietly and very quickly, that deal was completely dropped. And nobody even seemed to know why. Even Microsoft itself was in the dark. And what we found out a little bit later was TikTok had come to some sort of agreement with the U.S. government to begin what it called something called Project Texas, which was essentially bringing all this big hardware over uh, and storing it in Texas, in the United States, and bringing in dozens, if not hundreds, of quote-unquote former State Department, former FBI, and former CIA officials to run the company's most sensitive uh, divisions like trust and safety, like security and like content moderation. And so what I found in my investigations, which um, really just uh, involved looking at who were some of the most influential people at TikTok and starting to scrutinize some of their uh, backgrounds, was that an alarming number of them uh, had long, long careers in the national security state. So just as a couple of examples, uh, Christian Cardona enjoyed a distinguished career at the, distate, at the State Department. He served in Poland, Turkey and Oman, and he was uh, in the thick of U.S. interventionism in the Middle East in the 2010s. Um, for instance, between 2012 <clears throat> and 2013, he was an assistant to the U.S. ambassador in Kabul in Afghanistan, And then he later left that role to become the political and military affairs manager for Iran, for the United States on Iran. And yet from this uh, long career as a distinguished Mandarin, in the summer of 2021, he dropped all of that and went straight from a top job at the State Department to become the product policy manager for trust and safety at TikTok, which on paper is a move that he appears completely and utterly unqualified for. Um, He is certainly not the only person. We could have a look at somebody like TikTok trust and safety manager, Bo Patterson, who was until 2020, a CIA targeting analyst, meaning that he was choosing the sorts of targets that uh, the CIA would go after, perhaps with drones. Not only that, he, according to his uh, resume on LinkedIn, is still a serving military intelligence officer at the U.S. Army while moonlighting as the trust and safety manager for TikTok. And perhaps the most startling uh, of these hires that I found was Greg Anderson, whose own profile uh, suggests that he, not suggests, outright states that he worked on, quote, psychological operations, end quote, for NATO immediately before moving into social media. So why are all these people moving into highly politically sensitive fields within social media like TikTok? They're not going into marketing or customer sales or anything like, you know, service related. They're going into the areas whereby they have a say on what algorithms uh, produce. In other words, they are deciding what we see and what we don't see. And it's not just for Americans. This is the case whether you're in Cameroon, Chad or Canada. It doesn't matter if you're using TikTok or another big social media app where uh, former three-letter agency guys are absolutely uh, full or uh, just stacking the, um, stacking the uh, employment rosters there. Uh, this is really an incredible thing that's going on whereby the United States government really has a sort of one step away from government censorship on a global scale. And this is going on almost completely unmentioned by much of the media. And so ultimately, I would say that, you know, if people are going to ban TikTok, you can perhaps talk about it being no good for your brain. But ultimately, I don't think it's any more dangerous a threat than any of the rest. And this is a huge political football that's being kicked about right now. Uh, And it's got very little to do with the idea that the Chinese Communist Party is reading all your DMs or anything. It's more about control over one of the world's most (coughs) important and influential Uh, Methods of communication today.
0: Well, isn't it so interesting how um, everything that we project and accuse, everything we accuse China and Russia of doing when it comes to surveillance, you know, we are actually doing it already here through our social media um, giants like Facebook and Twitter. It's it's if not even worse. Um, And what's really interesting about TikTok um, is that sure, it's highly, it's a highly addictive and problematic social media platform for young people. We can all acknowledge that. Um, and yet uh, uh, n- the NATO officials, or not NATO officials, but the NATO to TikTok pipeline is allowing for Washington to literally train TikTok influencers on how to talk about the war in Ukraine while actively censoring posts by Palestinian activists who are uploading content to show the brutality of the Israeli um occupation and apartheid and its crimes in Gaza. And so it's really interesting to see that this war on TikTok is pl- taking place, and yet they are actively using it as you know for a very successful psychological uh, warfare campaign. But um anyways, <laughs> that's that's that that should wrap it up for for today. But we really appreciate you all joining us today. And Chris, thank you so much for being with us. It was truly an honor and pleasure to have you. As usual, we always learn a lot from you. And also we always learn a lot from the brilliant Alan McLeod. Um, and so that ra- that's it for our broadcast today. And you can find this um, live stream in audio format through all of your favorite podcast platforms when you search for Mintcast. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.